Thank you. Well, good morning. It's good to be back. Let's pray before we get started, if you join me. Father, as we had just read from Genesis chapter 24, as some of us can relate uh, because we're old and well advanced in years. But all of us can relate to the fact that in verse 1 you said the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Father, if we were to list out your blessings on us, it would take a long time this morning. You've blessed us with life. You've blessed us with all the provisions we need to live a godly life. Father, you've also blessed us eternally with uh, salvation through the incredible gift of your Son. And Father, we hold in our hands this morning another gift, the Bible, that you have given to us, your Word. And as we open your Word this morning, I pray that you would uh, open our ears, that you would uh, focus our eyes, that you would unclutter our minds that we might see uh, the truth that you have for us this morning through your Holy Spirit. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we are going to be in uh, Acts 25 today. Let's see if we can get on the right slide here. Can you back it up for me, one, if you can? So, we're going to be in Acts chapter 25 as, uh, can you back it up or try to? No? You can't back it up. All right. Huh? Oh, okay. Well, turn it off for a minute if you don't mind. Can't if you can. There you go. Thank you. As adults, we, uh, we like to ask our children lots of questions. And one of the questions uh, we like to ask our children is, what do you want to be when you grow up? And one time I asked our daughter Michelle that question, what do, you want, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she said, I want to be the boss. And I said, the boss? The boss of whom or the boss of what? She goes, it doesn't matter. I want a job like yours. I don't want to do any work. I just want to tell other people how to do the work. <laughs> now, my first thought was my explanations to her of what I did at work were not very clear. Uh, yeah. Or maybe they were, actually. David's back there. He could tell you. Well, right now, actually, she's a stay-at-home mom for our two oldest grandchildren, and she's working harder than I ever did. So God does have a sense of humor. But when she said that, my thought was, uh, we're not always that honest. But in fact, uh, I haven't met anyone who doesn't want to be in charge from time to time. You know, we may not want to be the boss because that job involves some pressures and headaches that, that come with that position. But when it comes to issues that are important to us, we want to be in charge. At least long enough to get our way. Let me see if you agree with that. When issues are important to us, we want to be in charge at least long enough to get our way. You agree? Yeah. In fact, struggling to be in charge is part of the biblical story from the very beginning. It was what was going on with Adam and Eve all the way through the Bible to the book of Revelation where Satan and his followers are having a, 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 a battle actually with God to see who's going to be in charge. And everywhere in between, 
And not only a Bible, it's part of our story as well, isn't it? Uh, in fact, it's so prevalent in our lives that oftentimes we don't even realize that we're doing it. It's the reason that we sin, obviously, but it also um, shows up in less subtle and more subtle ways. For example, that's why we want the TV remote control. That's why we argue over the air conditioning thermostat setting. At least we do at our house. And that's why I yell at the TV when the Astros manager is too late making a pitching change because I want to be in charge. But it's not only the biblical story, it's not only our story. I think we'll see today that it's part of the story of Acts 25. Now, at initial glance, the book of Acts 25 seems to be a continuation of an endless stream of legal hearings for Paul. After being mobbed by the Jews at the temple in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 21, Paul has to defend himself many times over the next couple of years. In Acts 22, he defends himself informally on the steps of the temple with the Jews down below. In Acts 23, he defends himself before the Jewish ruling council, Sanhedrin, and before the Roman commander, Claudius Lysias. In Acts 24, he's then in Caesarea, defends himself before the Roman governor, Felix. And as we come to Acts 25, in the words of Yogi Bear, it seems like deja vu all over again. Because we'll see Paul faces the same trumped-up charges from the same Jewish leaders. He gives the same defense, and he endures the same impotent rulings from judges who can't seem to do the right thing. But as we look deeper into Acts chapter 25, I think we'll also see a struggle between people who want to be in charge. So let's dig into this and see who actually wins the battle to be in charge. So let's look at the first six verses of Acts 25. Actually, we'll start with the last verse of chapter 24. Acts 24, starting in verse 27. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summoned him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. And after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. So we introduced in these first few verses Festus, the Roman governor Festus, newly appointed Roman governor to replace Governor Felix, who had been removed from his position by Rome. Now I'm almost certain that I'm going to confuse Felix and Festus as we talk about this this morning. I might even combine the names into something like uh, Festus or something. 
So you'll have to bear with me. If I give the wrong governor's name, just shout out the right one. That would be fine. So I've been practicing all morning. Fair Festus finally followed failed Felix. <laughs> failed. See, I got it wrong already. Fair Festus finally followed failed Felix. But we don't know a lot about this new governor, Festus. Uh, historical, historical accounts say he was from a noble family in Rome. He was a fairly sound ruler, especially when compared to his, previous, his predecessors, a much better governor of Judea. And unfortunately, he dies in office two years later. But what can we learn about him from the verses that we just read? Well, if you look at verse 1... Just three days after arriving in Palestine, Festus travels from Caesarea, that's his capital, to Jerusalem, the most important city to his subjects, the Jews. Not a lot of time to unpack, not a lot of time to enjoy his, the luxury of his new home, which was the former palace of King Herod the Great. No mention of elaborate inaugural dinners or welcome to Palestine parties. He just quickly went about the task at hand, which was to learn about the needs and the issues and the people of Palestine. It's a good start. In verse 6, it says, Upon his return to Caesarea, Festus convenes Paul's hearing, but he does it on the very next day. So it looks like Festus, to me, is a man of action. He doesn't let things wait like his predecessor Felix did. He's a man of action. Secondly, he looks like he's fairly discerning. In verse 4, when he's asked by the Jewish leaders to send Paul to Jerusalem for trial, Festus replies, if there's going to be a trial, it's going to be in Caesarea. That's where my capital is. That's where trials are supposed to take place. Perhaps he discerned that the Jewish leaders were up to no good. They were planning to ambush him. So he appears to be not only a man of action, but somewhat discerning. And it looks like he's a man of principle as well. Verse 5, he tells the Jewish leaders, if there's going to be a trial of Paul, then you need to come to Caesarea, and if you're willing to take a stand, come bring some charges against him. And then he implies that don't bring, don't bother if the charges aren't going to be valid. So Paul says, if we're going to have a trial, we're going to do it the right way. And if you think there's something serious going on, come to Caesarea and bring the charges. So he was a man of action. It appears to be somewhat discerning, and it looks like he's a principled man. Now, Festus knew how difficult the Jews had been historically, but the emperor had put him in charge, and he intended to remain so. I think he made a pretty good start. So Festus was the boss. Based on his position of authority, Governor Festus was in charge. But was he really? Let's keep reading. We'll pick it up in verse 7. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him so that they could, that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, 
Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and I have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death, but if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered to Caesar, You have applied, appealed to Caesar, you shall go. So let's look at these Jewish leaders. The last verse of chapter 24 said it had been two years that Governor Felix, then Governor Felix, had left Paul in prison. Two years is a long time. But two years was not long enough for these Jewish leaders to forget their intense hatred of Paul, nor their intense hatred of the way. In fact, they had seen the way strengthen. Christianity was strengthening during these two years that Paul was in custody. And two years was not long enough for the Jewish leaders to find any new evidence against Paul or any new witnesses to bring to the trial in Caesarea. In fact, in verse 3, the Jewish leaders asked Festus for a favor. Interesting word there because it's the word charis or charis. It's the Greek word that we translate almost all the time as grace. Jared read Ephesians 2 this morning, for by charis we've been saved. So it's the word grace. They asked Governor Festus for a favor, for some grace, for some unmerited gift. They wanted to transfer Paul to Jerusalem, and they knew it was wrong, but it was the only way they were going to get their way. And their way was Paul dead. Now think about it. They all knew why the former governor, Felix, had been removed from office. He was removed from office because of Jewish uprisings in Caesarea. He couldn't control them. He could not control the Jewish population, so Governor Felix was removed and replaced with Governor Festus. Now the Jewish leaders were essentially telling Festus, you want to make a good start? You want to keep your job? Do us a favor. Send us Paul. Transfer him to Jerusalem. Now let's step back a minute and just make an observation. These Jewish leaders were asking the Roman governor for a little grace while turning up their noses at the overwhelming grace, life-changing grace that had been offered them by God. Salvation through Jesus Christ. It's an amazing irony, isn't it? It could be that some of us this morning are doing the same. We're uh, continuously fighting for grace at work, for grace with our friends, fighting for grace with our families, fighting for favor wherever we can find it, all the while rejecting the greatest offer of grace we will ever receive. I pray that today would be the day, if that fits your description, I pray that today would be the day you realize the irony of that and the futility of that and place your faith 
in Jesus Christ for your eternal salvation. Back to the Jewish leaders, verse 6. They, uh, after Festus turns down their requested favor, it says here in my notes, Felix spends 8 to 10 more days. That's wrong. Festus spends 8 to 10 more days in Jerusalem and a couple of days traveling back to Caesarea. And then in verse 7 and 8, we have the legal hearing. It's only summarized by Luke. Basically, it's the same charges as before and the same defense as before. And then something very interesting happens in verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. After almost two weeks turning down the Jews' requested favor, Festus is now ready to grant it. What in the world is going on? I thought Festus was in charge, but now it appears that the Jewish leaders were once again in charge. Now, they had no legal authority over the Roman governor. In fact, quite the contrary. Festus was in charge by the nature of his appointed position. But the Jewish leaders were masters at gaining control through manipulation. And it only took them two weeks with Governor Festus. Now, why did I say once again? I said once again because it's what they did with the previous governor, Felix. Look at the last verse of chapter 24. <clears throat> verse 27 of chapter 24. When the two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, a charis, Felix left Paul in prison. So they had Felix first, now they've got Festus. In fact, it's what they did with Pontius Pilate back during Jesus' time. Let me just flip back to John chapter 19. After Pontius Pilate had interviewed Jesus, and Jesus didn't give him very much information, Pilate, in John chapter 19, verse 12, then says, From then on, Pilate sought to release him, Jesus, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. What were they telling Pilate? If you don't crucify Jesus, we're going to cause lots of trouble for you. We're going to tell. We're going to tell Rome. We're going to tell the emperor that Jesus was claiming to be a king and you didn't do anything about it. And they manipulated Pilate into crucifying Christ. The Jewish leaders were masters at getting what they wanted through manipulation. So Governor Festus had the position of authority, but the Jewish leaders were once again in control through manipulation. But were they really? Let's keep reading in verse 13 of chapter 25 of Acts. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priest and the elders of the law laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. 
I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up and they brought no charge in his case of such evil as I supposed, rather they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem. And he, and he tried there and be tried there recording them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the de decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have found, but I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Let's look at King Agrippa briefly. King Agrippa, his name is King Herod Agrippa II. He's the last, actually, of the Herodian kings that ruled Judea. The Herodian kings were appointed by the Romans as puppet kings to help keep control of the Jews, though the Jews generally despised them as much as they despised the Romans. And they only had the authority that was granted them by the Romans. They answered to the Roman governors. Now Herod Agrippa II was a wicked and evil man from a wicked and evil family. His great-grandfather was Herod the Great. He slaughtered thousands of babies in an attempt to eliminate the Messiah. His great-uncle was Herod Antipas. He put John the Baptist to death. His father was Herod Agrippa I, who killed the Apostle James and imprisoned the Apostle Peter. His sisters were Drusilla, who we saw in Acts chapter 24, the wife of Governor Felix. His other sister was Bernice, who came with Agrippa into the scene in Acts 25 as the queen, although she was actually his sister, living in an incestuous relationship. And in verse 22, King Agrippa volunteers to hear Paul's case. Basically, he's, he's an expert in all things Jewish. Governor Festus was confused about their religious arguments, and King Agrippa volunteers to hear the case. In verse 23, the next day, King Agrippa and his sister Bernice enter the hearing with great pomp, it says. 
The Greek word is phantasia. It's a word that describes a visible, visible display of something that's too good to be true. So they enter the audience hall, not the hall of justice where trials are normally had, but the audience hall where heads of state are recognized. So they enter the audience hall with all kinds of pomp, military tribunes. There were actually five Roman regiments stationed in Caesarea, so there were at least five Roman tribunes and their officers with them, almost undoubtedly dressed in their royal robes, the king and queen was, with crowns. Quite a scene, wasn't it? as they enter the audience hall with lots of fantasia. Visible displays of something that was too good to be true. And just take a sneak peek at the first verse of chapter 26. It's actually King Agrippa who eventually says to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So with everybody who's anybody in the audience hall that day, it was not Governor Festus. It was not the, governor's, the Jewish leaders who gave Paul permission to speak. It was King Agrippa. You say, wow, now this guy is in charge. He looked like the man in charge. He acted like the man in charge. Just look at all the splendor. Look at all the riches. Look at all the adoring guests that were in the audience hall. This man was in charge. But was he really? In this chapter, we've seen people vying to be in charge. We saw Festus trying his best to exercise the authority that had been granted him by Rome as the governor. We saw the Jewish leaders trying to get their way through manipulation. We saw Agrippa given the appearance of being in charge through status and appearances. But the one man who's the most in charge in this narrative is the one who has no apparent authority or status. In fact, he's a prisoner. He's the one who's not wearing royal robes with a crown. He's wearing a prisoner's tunic with iron chains on his wrist. He's the Apostle Paul. Look back at verse 8. His defense was direct and to the point. He says, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. Seems like a very short defense to me, but it was all that was needed. As Governor Festus himself states later in verses 18 and 19, he immediately knew full well that the charges brought by the Jews were ridiculous. And actually, we don't hear from the Jewish leaders again after this hearing. And then in verse 10 and 11, Paul refuses to be handed over to the Jews. He demands that his case instead be heard by the Roman emperor or his representative. It's a right that was available to every Roman citizen who was accused of a crime. Now the pressure is firmly on Governor Festus. How could he possibly explain to Rome why Paul was in custody? How could he explain to Rome why he was being sent to the emperor for trial? How could he possibly explain why Paul had been held in custody for two years? Paul had Festus in a bind, and even when Festus conferred with his counselors in verse 12, they had no answer. 
And as Festus stated publicly later in the presence of King Agrippa in verse 26, Festus was forced to ask King Agrippa on what was likely their first official meeting to help him figure out what he was going to write to Rome. Everybody knew Paul was innocent. They knew he was in the right. They knew that he was justified in calling them to account with Rome. In fact, the righteousness of his arguments and his behavior made it seem like Paul, the prisoner, not the high priest, not the Roman governor, not the Judean king, but Paul, the prisoner, was actually in charge. But was he really? So who was actually in charge in Acts chapter 25? Festus didn't know. King Agrippa and Bernice didn't know. The Jewish leaders should have known. But Paul knew it well, and we do as well. God was firmly in charge in Acts 25. So if you could pull the slide back up, it will show some scriptures here. This might actually help us. It's easy to say... You know that God is in charge. But since we're in a legal setting, we're talking about a legal hearing, let's present some scriptural evidence that God was actually in charge. So that's our question. Was God really in control of what was happening to and around Paul? And the first piece of evidence is that God chose Paul to testify before kings and that it would involve suffering. Here's Acts chapter 9. 15 and 16. It says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. These are Christ's words to Ananias right after Paul's conversion, telling Ananias, Go tell Paul what plans I have for his life. From the very beginning, God made it clear to Paul, You're going to be testifying before kings. And it's going to involve suffering. But not only did Paul choose, God choose Paul to testify before kings, God wanted Paul to testify in Jerusalem. And we see it in Acts chapter 20, just a few chapters back. This is Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders right before he leaves Ephesus to come to Jerusalem. He tells them, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So we see here not only that Paul knew he was called to go to Jerusalem, but we see here what Paul made so, what made Paul so powerful. He didn't want to be in charge in order to get his way, did he? He was perfectly comfortable letting God be in charge because he wanted God's way. That's what he says in the last half of that passage we just read. So God chose Paul to testify before kings. He wanted him to go to Jerusalem. He also wanted Paul to go to Rome. In fact, God had placed 
the desire to go to Rome in Paul's heart about three years earlier when Paul was living in Ephesus. Right after a revival broke out in Ephesus, Paul said this in Acts chapter 19, verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And then Paul, and then God confirms that desire to Paul a year later while in prison in Rome. Jesus stands beside the bed of Paul at night and tells Paul, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So God had earlier told Paul, You're going to testify before kings, you're going to go to Jerusalem and testify, you're going to go to Rome and testify. Now all of those scripture passages speak specifically to the situation that Paul found himself in, but there are other passages that apply to Paul that would also apply to us because God through the Holy Spirit was also giving Paul the words to say when he needed to say them. Read this passage from Matthew. This is Christ talking to uh, oops let me just read it to you because I think we got the wrong passage here. But uh, let me just read Matthew chapter 10 for you. Verses 17 through 20. Matthew chapter 10 verses 17 through 20. This is Christ speaking. His apostle says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. It's interesting. And it applies to Christ's words to his apostles, but it also applies to Paul. I think it also applies to us. Interesting, he tells them they're going to be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. So the Holy Spirit was given Paul what to say when he needed it. And then finally... God was even using the sinful acts of men to accomplish his purposes. Paul was going to Rome because of the sinful acts of the men that refused to set him free. But as we know from Romans 8:28, we know that all things we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, in our own lives, we can look back and we can sometimes see the truth of that. I find it to be more true when it's a difficult situation. So, think back with me about a past difficult time in your own life. Can you see now how God used it for good in your life or in the life of someone else? Sometimes he wakes us up. Sometimes he draws us to himself. Sometimes he brings someone else into our life or he humbles us or he builds our faith or he increases our endurance but he uses all things for good I can think of when my younger brother Stephen was drunk driving and killed himself and several others in a horrific traffic accident it was in October of 1985 and in October of 1987 is when I came to know Christ and during that two years I really struggle with God about that and it caused me to think and it caused me to think about alcohol and and the purpose of my life so God used that horrible incident at least in my life to turn me towards him 
And sometimes we can see the same thing in our own life. That's what was going on with Paul. Now, with regard to this last passage from Romans, uh, a question keeps popping in my head as I study Acts chapter 25. What good came from God putting Paul on hold for two years in Caesarea? Why didn't God just hurry Paul along to Rome instead of letting him rot in Caesarea for two years? Now, we, as we discussed back in June, anytime we ask a question that starts with, why did God? The answer is, I don't know. We don't ever fully understand it, but at least not in this life. But God sometimes gives us glimpses of what is going on when we look back. And so what do we see in this case? Well, one thing we can see is that some people definitely heard the gospel as a result of Paul's two years in Caesarea. Chapter 24 says Governor Felix called him many times. So Governor Felix likely heard the gospel many times during these two years. Because Paul stayed, now Governor Festus and King Agrippa and Bernice are going to hear the gospel in chapter 26. Think about the soldiers and the guards and the attendants that saw Paul on a regular basis. You think they heard the gospel? Absolutely. Think of the leading men of the city that entered the audience hall. They also heard the gospel. You know, one person coming to faith in Christ would have been more than reason enough for God to leave Paul in Caesarea for two years. But there's something else. I want you to think about God's, about Paul's friend, Luke, his faithful friend, Luke. He was with Paul when he came to Jerusalem two years previous. He stays with Paul, and he's with Paul when Paul eventually leaves Caesarea to go to Rome. Now, the current year was A.D. 59. Remember that 59 A.D. is the current year. Most scholars understand that the Gospel of Luke was actually published or sent out anywhere from A.D. 59 to A.D. 63. So sometime in the next few years, the Gospel of Luke was distributed. And if you read the first few verses of the Gospel of Luke, Luke states that he personally investigated or researched everything, he says, from the beginning of Christ's life to the end of Christ's life. He personally investigated it. It's just my opinion, but I think it's highly likely that Luke did a lot, if not the majority of his research, during these two years in Caesarea. So as we said, we really don't know with certainty the reasons God kept Paul imprisoned in Caesarea for so long, but we can say with certainty that it was not time wasted. So one of the principles I think we can take from Acts chapter 25 is that God was absolutely and unalterably in charge. Or to apply in our own life, God is absolutely and unalterably in charge. Now, there's a lot of ways, places we could go with that principle, especially in light of what's going on in the world, what's going on in our country. But the question I have for us this morning is, how can we embrace that truth as effectively as Paul embraced that truth? Instead of striving to be in charge and get our way, how can we cooperate with God and get His way? 
So this is the way I first wrote the heading on this slide. And there's an error on there if you look at it. Because I wrote, how can we cooperate with God and work to get his way? It implies that God won't get his way unless we work to help him. Which is absolutely wrong. It's an indication of the sinful attitude that's in our heads, in my head anyway. So I left it there just to show you how easily I can fall into this trap of thinking, even to a small degree, I'm somewhat in charge. You know, I'm going to help God get his way. It's ridiculous. So uh, we'll scratch out work to get his way and put welcome his way. How can we cooperate with God and welcome his way? Now, the Bible's full of advice to answer that question, but what I want us to do is just focus on three things that we see that Paul has done in the last few chapters of Acts. What are some things Paul has done that enables him to welcome God's way? First of all, he humbled himself before other people. In just the last few chapters, we've seen Paul be obedient to James and the elders of the Christian church when they tell him to go participate and join some men in a Nazarite vow. We've seen him be courteous to the Roman commander to arrest, who arrested him and prepared to whip him. We've seen him be respectful with Governor Felix and Drusilla, who had done little, if anything, to earn that respect. And we've seen it by his never-ceasing willingness to present the gospel to those who wanted him imprisoned and to those who wanted him killed. I think one way we can check our attitude towards God is by observing our attitude towards his creation, towards other people. And if we are willing to humble ourselves to other sinful men and women, how much easier and meaningful will it be to humble ourselves before our perfect Father, to seek his way instead of our own. So the first thing I think we can do as modeled by Paul is to humble ourselves before other people. The second thing is to keep a clear conscience. And by that I mean to strive to obey God's word and to ask for forgiveness when we fail. This was so serious in Paul's mind that he was able to say repeatedly in the book of Acts that his conscience was clear. It's what he said uh, to the Sanhedrin back in the very first verse of chapter 23. He said, my conscience is clear. It's essentially what he says in verse 8 of the chapter that we just read. I, I've neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Not that Paul was without sin. In fact, he calls himself the foremost of sinners in his first letter to Timothy. But he had a deep desire to obey God and he asked for forgiveness when he came up short. And he's going to talk to King Agrippa in chapter 26 about that very thing. I think we're much more likely to follow someone and let him or her take charge if we have a clear conscience before that person. So the first thing we can do is humble ourselves before other people. Second, keep a clear conscience. And third, is to stay alert for opportunities to glorify God. It seemed like Paul's eyes were always open and he never missed an opportunity to glorify God with his words and actions. Now, I'm not nearly so alert. I probably miss hundreds of opportunities 
every week. You may be the same because we don't know when the next opportunity will come. We don't know what it will be. It could be today. It could be today in church. It could be later at lunch with a family member. It could be someone we just meet. It could be a phone call at work next week. It could be at the doctor's office. It could be in jail. Like Paul. So in closing, would you ask, would you join me in asking God for some charis, for some grace, for a favor? Let's ask God for the grace to do all these better. So that by God's grace, we can humble ourselves before other people, we can keep a clear conscience, and we can stay alert to the opportunities that God puts before us. And in doing so, we can let him be in charge and welcome his way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we opened your word this morning that you have something for us. We confess that we uh, fall so short of your glory. Yet we thank you for the opportunity you give us day after day to try again. And so, Father, I ask for myself and my friends here that you would give us charis, that you would give us grace and favor to enable us to glorify you yet today.